electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hey everyone, welcome to another Tech Check Plus live stream. I'm thrilled to welcome Ryan Breslow to the stream, uh, executive chairman now and founder of Bolt. Ryan, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. <laughs> I'm just tweeting a popcorn emoji because I feel like some of your audience <laughs> may be eating popcorn and watching this as they have with your tweets. Um, so let's, let's dive right in. I mean, you have made a stand on Twitter um, against what you call maybe the Silicon Valley or the startup mob. And this isn't Twitter, you have more than 140 characters. So why don't you start by just laying out sort of what your experience has been, why you decided to speak out and what exactly you're speaking out against. Sure, I had made a commitment to my team that when, you know, and my friends and my family that as our company would become successful, I wouldn't sell out one, we wouldn't sell the company. And two, you know, in terms of what we stand for, we wouldn't sell out, right? We would stand behind what we think is right. And that applies to so many things from conscious culture and the and conscious.org, which we've launched a four-day work week and taking a big stand there. And another is my personal founder journey, which has been um, really, really challenging over the course of the last eight years. And I found that it was really important to call out the dark side of Silicon Valley and the things that I witnessed firsthand, not just on behalf of myself, but so many other founders that I know have um, also faced the, the same challenges. Right. Now, certainly at CNBC, we've covered some of the darker sides, like the bro culture that emerged during the Uber era. Um, but what you're taking aim at is sort of what you call the Y Combinator complex and competition and um, perhaps conflicts of interest within the VC world. Explain that side of it and what you've seen. I have a bit of an opposition to anyone that tells you that you need them to be successful. And I think that's the narrative in Silicon Valley. You need a tier one VC. Um, you need Y Combinator in order to be successful. And so founders end up giving up substantial amounts of equity to people who don't deliver that much value, right? And maybe some founders find value, but the vast majority don't. And so whether it's myself or any employee at the company, we have to deliver to earn our value, right? Like my board can, you know, they don't like me. They can say, you know, you're gone. If you're not delivering value, I have to deliver. My can they? Your board can oust you? Yeah, board always has the right to oust the CEO. Unless, right? yeah is unless you fill it with sort of insiders and you hold the majority of voting power, which we can't see because you're not public yet. So is that actually the case right now? Well, some boards founders have more control influence, some have less. Um, so it obviously varies by company, but the board has the right to do that, right? So everybody- What about yours specifically though, Ryan? Can yours oust you if they wanted to? Yeah, definitely. In terms of vote, the voting power that you hold also? Yeah, it's- Okay. It's- it's always possible. So, <laughs> it's always possible, but is it always likely, I guess, is the question. Let me just go back. You said that yeah. um, 
and this is this is a great conversation. So I'm kind of I'm going to be playing devil's advocate sometimes as well. Yeah. Um, I don't have any stake in the matter. I'm just here to ask the questions. Ryan, you said that you know there's this perception that you need top tier, these prestigious Silicon Valley VCs. What have you done differently? Because when I look at some of your investors, they include some prestigious names, perhaps just not from Silicon Valley. You have BlackRock, you have General Atlantic, you have Invis Opportunity. So it's not like you went to sort of smaller, perhaps more diversified VCs. You went to some of some pretty big golden names just outside of Silicon Valley. Yeah, totally. And just to wrap a bow on the last point, I'm accountable. Right? I'm accountable to my employees, to my executive team, to my shareholders, to my board. I have to report on what I've done to bring the business forward. And so when there are people on your cap table that aren't accountable, they're just there because of their name. Um, that's what we're, we're going up against. And so the reason we've been able to get these you know, larger growth investor institutions is we've made it to be a late stage company. Right? So for every one of us, there are thousands that don't make it, right? And so now we've been able to raise from the Black Rocks and the General Atlantics of the world, but that's seven to eight years into our journey. Whereas, you know, we're in a very small uh, group of companies, especially in the payment space that have made it to this stage against these mm -hmm. kind of forces, forces uh, at play. And I guess then, like, who do you think that you answer to by sort of alienating the so-called Silicon Valley mob? If you hadn't, perhaps you could get a better valuation. You would have more investors interested. Do you have a duty to your employees and to your existing investors to find the most value for your company? Yeah, absolutely. I think that in today's world, there's a high premium on authenticity. So I'm going to be highly authentic with my employees and with my investors so that they know who they're doing business with, mm -hmm. right? And so I think it's actually okay to be a little bit po polarizingly authentic <laughs> because, you know, the right people will want to work with you and the wrong people won't. And I'm totally cool with that. And mm -hmm. so I think if me speaking out, I mean, some people don't want to work with me. Those are the people that I probably don't want to be working with, right? Okay. Fair enough. Authenticity. Want to work with me are going to want to work with me even more. Fair. Um, authenticity. How much is transparency part of that? Did your existing investors that just invested in the Series E round did they know that you were stepping down as CEO when they when they actually put money in? So that was a decision that came in after the E one round. So we told them as soon as we had started. On, down that path. So they and didn't now, know when they invested. They were informed after. Okay. Because you started yeah. down that path after they invested. You didn't have plans before exactly. that to step down? Exactly. No, we hadn't even thought of it beforehand. And so, but we did think about it a few weeks ago, at which point when we had conviction about it, we told them, you know, some people told me that I should wait until after our E2 round, which is something we're raising. And, you know, don't stir the pot. And they're like, oh, you have this Twitter thing going on. You shouldn't announce it. Wait till after. And so I don't operate like that, right? I need my people, my team, my investors, potential investors to know as soon as humanly possible when we're going to make a, a big decision like that right before they put checks into the company. So we I actually easily could have done it after the E2 round, but instead we did it as soon as we could. 
how can you make a decision like that so quickly if this really took place in a matter of weeks? You know, when did the idea first arise to you that maybe you weren't the right person to be running this company and that it should be someone else after you, you know, have put in the work of growing it? Yeah, we make what we call fearless first principled decisions at full. And so we ignore stigma. When we have an idea, we analyze it on a first principles basis. And so I had the idea one day, I was like literally meditating. And I was like, you know, Maju is one of the ultimate executors. He already had the majority of the company working to him. And I had wa wanted an increased desire to focus on deals and vision and culture. And so I had the idea and I called Maju and he was like, are you, you know, it's a big idea. Are you sure? And so he spent the next week or so working with our board and him and thinking through the idea. And the outcome was pretty quickly that it's a phenomenal idea. Mm. And, you know, once we come to that conclusion, we just move forward. So you decided with your board, um, did you seek any feedback? I guess you didn't from your investors, right? We called our, some of our largest investors, even ones not on the board. Uh, we had some conversations okay. and uh, we make quick, we make really quick decisions. <laughs> Fair like, enough. Can you tell me, Ryan, who's on your board? How many people is it? Yeah, it's the key, the key kind of founding partners at Westcap Group, Activent Capital and Tribe Capital, all who've led various rounds for us. We also have uh, uh, Anton, who's one of the main folks at, at General Atlantic as an observer on our board. Um, and, uh, and myself and Maju should be joining the board, our new CEO, fairly soon. So no independent members, is that right? Correct, yeah. It's, it's, you uh, plan on adding some, especially as you talk about this authenticity and transparency and holding yourself accountable. You also said that you guys are late stage. So you know, do you plan on that and when? Yeah, we certainly do. So that's something we're thinking about in depth right now. Who are the next right additions to... Uh, to you know, build this board out. When can we see that? To be determined. You know, you want it to be very Weeks, months, years, months, months. Okay, and you're actively looking now. We are. Okay, let's dig into sort of the argument that you made on Twitter. Um, the flip side of this: No, you were not part of Y Combinator, but you have been able to grow into an eleven billion dollar company without them, without that so-called mob. Does that sort of disprove your point that you need them because you have been able to grow into what you call a late stage company? Well, it proves my point that you don't need them. Yes. And right, that's exactly what I'm saying. So they want you to believe that you need them, that you need to pay their 7% fee. And uh, my message to founders is with a little bit of extra effort, you're able to make it on your own. Then why speak out if you were able to grow without them? Why sort of poke the bear, if you will? Well, they also engage in tactics that favor their picks in a disproportionate way. I'd say that most other, even institutions in Silicon Valley. Um, and so, you know, you, you, they prioritize selling that product within their batch, right? And so I think the way they operate resembles a mob, which is you pay their fee, you get access to them, you get protection from them, you know, the, you get access to certain VCs. So listen, I, you know, 
This is a nuanced I guess my, my, it is nuanced. My question is, though, like, some might see you traded one mob for another, the other mob being sort of Wall Street with your current set of investors. Yeah, I mean, we didn't for a long time. You know, we were criticized for raising party rounds with a bunch of different miscellaneous angels and smaller firms. We have hundreds and hundreds of investors on our cap table um, who, you know, are uh, shops that most people haven't heard about who are up and comers. And so I would argue the opposite. If we've, we've helped make a lot of careers in the investing world. Yeah. And these larger institutions have only come in at much later routes. Okay. I guess another question here, and then I want to move on to the actual business. Um, why not just focus on the product? I know that you've stepped down as CEO, you're now executive chair, but you know, does this amount to a distraction is what some may wonder? Yeah, well, I see it as stepping up in my visibility in the organization. So my superpower is not the day-to-day -day execution. I can do it, but there are other people who have much more experience with that, notably Maju. My superpower is signing deals, leading vision, and setting culture. And all day with extreme focus. And so, you know, in the last six months, the reason why investors are investing so much money in our business is we signed an extraordinary amount of deals that fuel the majority of our next three years of growth, right? Just deals we signed in the last six months. And that was a lot of my involvement in signing these like enormous deals. And so now I'm able to just focus on that, right? Mm -hmm. Along with vision and culture. But that's going to do untold wonders for our business. And so once again, the first principal decision was a fearless decision and the right decision. When you say you can focus on signing deals, does that mean raising more money? Yeah, totally. How do you do that if you're not you know, integrated in the day-to-day? -day? I mean, I, I feel like when we cover a lot of the startup world, um, investors really like to see a founder running the company, does it hurt your ability to raise money if you, you know, you tell an investor that you sit down with that you're not involved in the day-to-day? -day? I still get reported on what happens and I still interject on things where, you know, it doesn't pass a sniff test where I do need to, to deep dive. So this doesn't mean I'm not fully aware of the day-to-day. -day. I'm tracking literally everything. Right. But it means I'm not managing day to day. So I used to have like upwards of a dozen direct reports where I'm doing one-on-ones and managing the day, day. Now I just read everything and I will dig in when, when I need to dig into something. Ryan, what do you make of the response that you have received from the VC community here in Silicon Valley and elsewhere? Um, there's been a strong one. I mean, I just saw that tweet from uh, Mark Andreessen with the meme. You think he makes that himself, by the way? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, it would be pretty cool if he did. I actually thought that meme was kind of funny. It wasn't. I thought it was too. I'm glad you can see the humor in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I know, I wonder because, you know, the VCs have all of these content people now. Are they the ones actually making it? Yeah, who knows, right? I thought that um, that was funny. Some of the other responses weren't as funny, um, but uh, I appreciated his. So, you know, the VCs spend a lot of time on Twitter. And founders yeah. don't, right? There are a couple founders, right? Musk and Jack Dorsey. Um, uh, Aaron Levy is another one. Aaron Levy, right? So I put out a post and said, here's how you can like rock Twitter as a founder with minimal time. I wrote how I do it. And right? I just do a bunch of tweets at the beginning of the month. 
in one sprint and then I, you know, write my learnings for longer posts and seems to be working pretty well. Mm. You mentioned that some of the responses weren't so funny. Um, in what sense did they sort of have at any point, did you regret doing this because of some of that harsh feedback? No, I would say that, you know, the harsh feedback only validated what I assumed. So, right. you know. Any that you were surprised by that you thought were maybe sort of on your side that spoke out against you in the VC community? Yeah, I mean, I would think that a, you know, Paul Graham or Sam Altman, they wouldn't, you know, respond in such a lowbrow way. Um, and, but, you know, they, they kind of just showed their true colors, in my opinion, the Sequoia VC, right? So I was hoping for a more constructive conversation on the topic. Right. And I didn't get that, which only has made me since more convicted, you know, like, I care a lot about founders. That's represented everything I do. Bolts as a business empowers other businesses. I've written books where I haven't made any money off the books. I lost money because I have to pay for publishing and printing and all of that. Like I've done a lot of things, mm -hmm. you know, to empower the next generation. You know, I run a dance nonprofit that does after school programs teaching how to dance. It's called the movement. Like I care so much about empowering the next generation and uh, i just want to see them be successful and you know i see a lot of sharks right. in the water in silicon valley that are harmful to the ecosystem ryan you bring up such an interesting point that you are one of sort of a small handful of ceos who will make these big statements go up against um institutions but it is a growing circle, right? And Elon Musk has sort of turned the format on its head. I mean, <laughs> the numbers and his business have climbed. Meanwhile, if, if they hadn't, maybe we'd be judging it a little differently. But so much has changed in the last few years, right? Sort of retail investors have gained a lot of control. When you look at the AMCs and GameStops of the world, do you think that the dynamic from a much broader point of view is changing between founders and VCs? And at large, that power dynamic is shifting? I think it is for sure. Um, I'd like to see it shift faster. I think that what we're learning is, and something that should never, never have been a secret, is that the people matter in your organization. Um, and so the people are the product, whether it's a founder or an employee, you need to go to bat for the people because you get rid of the people or you don't treat them well and you ruin the business. And so a lot of VCs will come in, you know, they're pro founder until it gets to a certain point, the company's big, they get nervous mm -hmm. and they go and they attack the founder and the company never grows again. Um, right. And so, you know, what, like the human ability, human creativity or human perseverance, it's, was, it's the driving force behind creating a great company, a great movement, and we have to promote the people and investors. If I invest in a company, I'm in service. One of our great investors, Soma Capital, says they're a customer service organization, right? They're in service to the companies. And I really think if you're going to put capital behind a company, you need to believe in the team and you got to support them. 
Ryan, I want to just ask you about a few things that you've said or tweeted. You said that you believe that Stripe has asked many of its VCs to refrain from backing potential competitors, including by leveraging the YC network. Uh, what makes you think this? Do you have evidence of it? I don't, like, I've been told it by so many people by now that are unfortunately afraid to come out because I've asked so many of them, like, would you come out? And they're like, no, we still rely on VCs. Right, we still rely on this community. So, you know, I'm trying to get some of them to come out, and I'm compiling stories in private, and I'm and hopefully one day uh, be able to share those publicly. But, um, you know, any fintech founder has experienced this, or I'll say the vast majority. And I even had reporters reach out to me, um, telling me how fearful they've been you know, writing stories about them or, or in this space and how they've interacted. Stories with about, about Stripe? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. So the reason this took off, right, has so, caught so much attention is because there's a lot of truth to it, right? If something's completely bogus, you know, no one talks about it. Um, the, like everybody knows that there's so much truth here. And that's why it's gotten attention. It has. Well, I know, but it's hard when you say things like everybody knows, but then we don't have anyone coming out, right? So Ryan, I don't know, bring it, bring it to us though when you do have someone who wants to speak out, because I think that's where a lot of the skepticism comes from is that these sort of big claims or even like maybe accusations, we don't, we don't hear them from others or you're not really showing us who. Um, but I wonder too, yeah, like right? what, what, what's people your view? who can speak out or, or who have the stories can't because okay. of the environment they're in, right? And so we shouldn't assume that because people aren't speaking out, it's not true. Um, okay, fair. Um, Ryan, why do you think Stripe remains private? I mean, it's one of the oldest unicorns and they don't seem like they're very close to a public listing. Yeah, I mean, that that is on you know point with what I'm saying, which is they have a stranglehold on the investor community. Right, but VCs, you know, have certain timeframes for their investments. Right, so, so why would they not want to out out as long, as long as humanly possible? Like when I started Bolt eight years ago. They don't um, though, it's not as long as humanly possible. It's typically seven to 10 years, although that is changing a little bit, but still, you know, when they have to answer to their LPs about their time horizons. Yeah, I mean, it's a good business strategy on their part, you know, I've always, you know, I haven't been able to obviously raise from Stripe investors. And so I was always hoping, you know, I started this business eight years ago. I'm like, okay, Stripe's going to IPO soon. And all those investors will then be freed up to invest in other companies such as us. And that day is, has never come. So it's, you know, strategy is working. But Okay, let's let's. I know we're almost hitting the end of our time. This has been a really fascinating discussion. Um, we can pick it up at a later time for sure. I do want to get to your business, Bolt. Um, so you compete in the very competitive payment space with Stripe, with others, with some of the giants like PayPal and Block as well. Um, just five percent of transactions involve shoppers that it has seen before across its network. So those are the transactions that you monetize, right? Yes, exactly. So if we can one-click somebody on your site as a merchant from our network that's pre-existing on our network, we charge you network fee. If we can't, we don't charge you anything. So it's a very radical new approach to, to pricing. It's not that radical, giving something for free with per 
perhaps subsidized by VC dollars. We certainly saw this in the ride-sharing space that were burned through billions and billions of dollars by you know, giving their customers something for free, essentially subsidizing that. So I wonder, how do you, you know, monetize the business, get to profitability, especially yeah. given that you have so many competitors in the space? Well, our business model is, has a very direct formula for profitability, right? You don't have to have any imagination. So the more shoppers that join our network, the higher the percentage becomes of one-click transactions originating from our network. And so that number is 5% today. By end of this year, it should be in the, in the double-digit percentages. And in a few years out, it will be in the high double-digit percentages. And we'll be charging our network fee on all of those transactions, right? What does that stickiness look like? And I mean, yes, that's the way it's supposed to work, right? Eventually you get to enough market share that you're able to charge for it. But like I said, there's so many others doing this that are you know, even better capitalized to offer those kinds of discounts. So what are you seeing right now in terms of retention? Yeah, so nobody's doing what we're doing. And that's the key, that's the key point here, is we offer a holistic one-click checkout solution. We're not a button, right? So there's Google Pay and Apple Pay and PayPal we integrate into the core checkout experience and we're the only company to date that can do that in a tech agnostic way right shopify has this for shop it's called shop pay but in terms of a one click that is tech stack agnostic and works across other platforms we're the only ones that do that and the reason we can do that is because we've built this product called checkout os people should go on bolt.com and read through checkout os but we integrate with everything from the shipping to fulfillment, coupons, discounts, to shopping cart, to order management systems, to ERP systems, inventory management systems. We connect to the entire landscape of commerce around the transaction to embed into the core checkout. Right. We're the only company that can do that today. And that's why our investors and our team okay. sees this as a total blue sky opportunity. Okay, well, Ryan, we look forward to seeing how the business evolves, where you go, especially uh, continuing your crusade, I guess, maybe you call it, right, for authenticity. I hope transparency as well. I'll check back in with you about that board. Uh, you said a few months from now, you'll add some independent members. And we hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Thank you so much for joining us. I like these formats because we can chat a little bit more. Yeah, such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.